Let's pray, and then we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, to, to not only read it, to, but to be shaped by it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but that you would speak to each of us on what godly character looks like in your church. I pray, God, that we would represent Jesus to a watching world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Here's a brief video that gives us an intro in 1 Timothy 3. The book of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul between 62 and 66 AD to his church-planting apprentice, Timothy. After mentoring Timothy and being impressed by his devotion to Jesus, Paul tasked him to confront the distorted teaching in the Ephesian church and to restore the church back to its gospel roots. The Ephesian church leaders had veered from God's word, replacing scripture with strange teachings inconsistent with the message of Jesus. Paul indicates that genuine Christian teaching always starts with scripture, through which God's grace is revealed to those who hear. Paul charges Timothy to appoint new, godly elders who have healthy family relationships and whose lives display a knowledge of and consistent carrying out the needs of the church while exemplifying Jesus. In discussing leadership, Paul reminds Timothy that every Christian is subject to the authority and example of Jesus, who exchanged pride for humility and combativeness with peace. Paul's letter to Timothy outlines a holistic vision of the church, where theology, beliefs, and actions must constantly be cross-examined by Scripture as the ultimate authority in our lives. How many in the room have ever gone house shopping before? Maybe you purchased a house, maybe you went and looked at some houses, and you're like, eh, maybe not. But when you look at a house, what are the things that you look for? I mean, if you were going to look at like maybe the television shows like House Hunters and some of those things, most people look at the layout of the house, how it feels, the aesthetic, the paint colors, the floor coverings. I mean, we even have businesses that, that, that you can pay thousands of dollars to stage your house so that it looks really pretty and people can kind of get this sense of what it would be like to live there. However, if you're a house flipper or if you're an experienced home buyer, that's not what you look for at all. In fact, you walk right into that house, generally you go down to the basement, whether it's finished or not, and you begin looking at the foundation to see if there's any cracks. And then you move on to really exciting things like the furnace and see how old it is, and the water heater. And then if you're feeling really adventurous, you go over to the electrical box and you see if it's updated or if it's knob and tube. And then you start looking in the ceilings and seeing if there's any plumbing that's exposed in the basement, and you wonder, is it copper pipe? Is it PEX? Or is it galvanized and it's going to need to be all replaced? Now, why is it? Yeah. <laughs> we got a plumber here? Job security, maybe? Um, here's the thing. We go into a house and we wonder, is it pretty? Does it look nice? And yet, changing floor coverings is a relatively minimal expense um, or, or paint colors is probably the cheapest thing that you can change in your house, and most people could do it. However, if you have an electrical issue and there's nothing but knob and tube running through your house, you are going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, and it will look exactly the same when you're done. And it will be not exciting at all. Like, flip my house, you're like, it looks the same. Without $10,000. 
Or if you have a plumbing issue, you want to talk about a not exciting expenditure. But we only notice the plumbing usually when it doesn't work. Or if you go down and it is the most gorgeous house in the world, but it's got this huge, massive crack in the foundation, you might spend half of what you paid on the entire house just to fix that foundation issue. See, none of the things that catch your initial attention are actually the right things to look at. In the same way, you might attend and go to a church that has amazing worship and high production, and it might have a gifted communicator as a pastor, assuming that you're going to another church. But if it has bad doctrine, like a poor foundation, or it has a poor leadership structure, something like plumbing or electrical, it eventually is going to hurt people. When I talk with people at the monthly, like, pizza with the pastor, kind of our get-to-know-you type thing, ask any questions. If, if some of the initial questions are, what's your leadership structure like? Or what do you believe about X, Y, and Z? Generally, it tells me a lot of where you've been. It's like the person who walks into a house and immediately tests the plumbing and looks at all the pipes. Uh, you've had a plumbing issue, haven't you? When people ask about leadership structure, generally there's something that says, It did not go well in the previous place. See, as a church, what we believe matters. That's our foundation. But who we allow to lead us also matters. And so today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about leadership in the church. The qualifications of leaders, elders, and deacons. And there's some of you that might be thinking, you know, Pastor Kyle, this sounds like a really self-serving sermon. In fact, when I told Liz which passage from 1 Timothy that I was going to be preaching on, she said, why are you picking that one? That's awkward. To talk about the qualifications of a pastor or a leader or a deacon while you're preaching a sermon, I get it. It's a little awkward. And it's supposed, and it might sound self-serving to you. Let me tell you, it's not. The standard is both incredibly ordinary and incredibly high because it has to do with character and who you are. Because here's what I found, and you've probably found out too. Bad leadership hurts people, doesn't it? Whether it's a teacher or a principal at a school, they can do incredible good or incredible damage. Whether it's your supervisor at work or the CEO of your company, a good leader can make your life enjoyable. A horrible leader can make your life miserable. Whether it's a president or a governor or another politician, Bad leadership hurts people, and even more importantly, if someone is a leader in Jesus' church, specifically tasked with representing him to others, it doesn't matter how slick and gifted and outwardly compelling he is if he isn't godly. If he isn't godly, it's going to blow up someday, and it's going to hurt a lot of people. Even deacons, who don't lead in exactly the same way as pastors and elders, still wield significant spiritual authority, and they can do either a lot of good or a lot of damage. And so there's a tension when looking at the qualifications of a church leader. On the one hand, they seem pretty high, and we wonder, does anybody hit them? On the other hand, they're written down by a guy who just described himself two chapters before as the chief of sinners, that had been shown remarkable grace, and so there's a tension that I want us to feel. Let me just read it, and then we'll dive in. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Obviously, they're speaking of Jesus. This is God's word. Of all the passages to preach in 1 Timothy, why? One, on leadership, and in particular, the qualifications. Because in many ways, we have a lot to learn about what makes a godly leader. In in a lot of ways, we see what I would call a leadership crisis all around us because in many ways, we've neglected the primacy of character in our leaders. See, in the scriptures, there are two specific leadership roles that are spoken of. Overseers, sometimes called elders or pastors or bishops, And deacons, sometimes referred to as ministers or servants or, in our lingo, directors. See, the way that Paul writes to Timothy to handle the problems that are surfacing in the church of Ephesus is to appoint godly leaders so that whether he comes or whether he's delayed even further, they will know how to live godly lives. And so he appoints elders or overseers and deacons. Elders or overseers... um, oversee the whole of the church, and they focus their ministry on teaching and prayer and modeling spiritual maturity for the whole church community. Deacons, we're not really given a job description for them per se, but they're given qualifications on who it is that can lead because they embody in many ways a a spiritual authority by who they are, and they lead in the ways that the elders ask them to. At Rock Hill, we use the term pastor and elder and overseer interchangeably. Elder is the office in the Bible. Pastor is in many ways the vocation or the job. And so for us, elders are those who just serve as lay elders, and pastors are vocational elders. It's not the only way that you can make a distinction, but it's helpful to kind of clarify what we do around here. In the same way, deacons oversee areas of ministry like kids ministry and youth ministry and finance ministry and mercy ministry and global ministry, and they can be men or women. And Directors are vocational deacons that are overseeing key areas of ministry that are actually on staff. So let's dive into each. 
Um, but maybe before we do that, I'll just start with a little bit of the elephant in the room of, you, you said that deacons can be men or women, but you're implying, Pastor Kyle, that pastors or elders are to be men. Yeah, that's actually true. That's what we believe the Bible teaches about the difference between men and women and their calling in the body of Christ. Now, let me read one of our theological distinctives because I think it hits on some really important points of what we believe and what we don't believe about this particular thing. It's kind of the elephant in the room because when it comes to the culture that we find ourselves in, it really cuts against the grain. It seems like it's weird, like it's different, like it shouldn't be like that. And so another note on our theological distinctives. As a church, we have what we call three different categories of of doctrine. We have the essentials, which is what our members need to affirm in its entirety. It's what most or every Christian should believe. We have our non-essentials, which are things that we just don't have an official position on. We, we are free to disagree about. You, these are things like how old the earth is, whether it's millions of years or, or thousands of years old. We, uh, whether it's um, things like whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're public school or private school or homeschool your kids, those are in the non-essential categories. As a church, we have no official position. People do, and they're welcome. In fact, many of them want to share it with you. However, as a church... We don't divide over those things. In the middle, though, is, is what we would call theological distinctives, or things that are important, important enough because they, they, they impact our behavior. They impact how we relate to God and how we operate as a church, but not essential, important, because other Christians that, that love Jesus deeply actually disagree with us on some of these things. This particular theological distinctive is just that. It's something that is important for how we function as a church, but in fact, you don't have to affirm it in order to be an elder, but you do need to, or sorry, you don't have to affirm it in order to be a member, but you do have to understand that this is what our church believes and this is how we practice it. Does that make sense? If we don't have three categories, we spend all of our time fighting over which category it's going to be in. And so we have these six of them. If you're wondering, oh my goodness, what is that about? It's on our website. You're welcome to read it there. But here's, here's what it says. We are deeply committed both to the fundamental spiritual and moral equality of male and female, as well as the principle of male headship in the church and home. Both men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons, possessing the same moral dignity and value and have equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry in service to the body of Christ, and through teaching in ways that are consistent with the word of God. Both husbands and wives are responsible to God for the spiritual nurture and vitality of their home. But God has given to the man primary responsibility to lead his wife and family in accordance with the servant leadership and sacrificial love modeled by Jesus Christ. The elders, pastors of each local church have been granted authority under headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight and to teach Preach the word of God in corporate assembly for the building up of the body. The office of elder or pastor is restricted to men. So what do we believe and what do we not believe? Equality is not at stake. We are both equal as image bearers of God and heirs with Jesus Christ. Giftedness is not at stake. Both men and women have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, both with gifts of teaching and leadership. But the role of elder or pastor is restricted by God's good design to men, who also provide the leadership in their home. 
so that the governance of God's household, the family of God, the church, is based on the governance and leadership of the home. It's our belief that the role of deacon, or the office of deacon, is for both men and women for a couple reasons. First, this passage, it would seem odd, it's translated, likewise their wives, it would seem odd that there would be qualifications for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives, doesn't it? It does to me. Actually, an alternate translation would be likewise women deacons, and that's our understanding. Additionally, in some of the other letters we see, like Romans 16, there are women that are serving and functioning in leadership roles within the context of the church. So elders as a whole oversee the whole of the church, and they focus their ministry on teaching, while deacons may teach but focus their, their ministry on individual areas and aren't required necessarily to teach. Obviously, there's more that we could say on this, but I would say that godly Christians can and do disagree on this, but what we think about the scriptures and what it teaches actually matters. We want to bring ourselves under the authority of God and his word. Therefore, it is good news to believe what God says about us and more, live more fully into our design. I'm sure you probably have a thousand questions. Often when I articulate complementarian theology, which is what this is called, people will look at me like I have a third eye. Why in the world would you hold this? It's because this is what I think the Bible teaches as good news. Well, if one submits to another, then they can't actually be equal. Well, not at all. In fact, we see in the scriptures that Jesus submits himself to the Father regularly. And yet none of us would say that Jesus is less than God. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and sent by the Son, but none of us would say that he is less than. In fact, he empowers and makes possible all of their work. In the same way, often Eve was called the helpmeet or the helper, which is one of the names given to the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. Being male and female created in the image of God teaches us something about God. Three persons, one God, equal in, in, in essence, but different in role. One of the biggest misnomers of our culture is that God somehow just creates people, not male and female. And we are dealing in so many ways with the fallout of that reality. It's okay for us to say that men and women are different without attaching over-cultural language or burdens to that. But to deny even the, the essence of that actually creates turmoil in everything, doesn't it? And that's another sermon entirely. Don't worry, I'll get that one at some point. If you would like to take this offline or have another conversation, I'd be happy to engage with you. My, my email is kelsey at rockhillcc.org. No, actually, it's Kyle at Rock Hill CC. I'd love to talk with you about this because I think it does matter, and it is important, but it isn't essential. Okay. As we look at both of these lists, it's remarkable in many ways how unremarkable the qualifications are. By and large, what's being described for us is what should be true of every Christian or every mature Christian. We'll look first at the list for elders and then deacons. And as we look to elders, we might expect that the, the qualifications for a leadership office in the church might be something like, he needs to be smart, like a minimum threshold of an IQ of 120. Or he needs to be able to cast a compelling vision or needs to be able to mobilize others in the work. Instead, what you get is a rather ordinary list like he shouldn't get drunk. He shouldn't be physically violent or a brawler. Nor should he be quarrelsome, always wanting an argument, even if it's a theological one. 
He should be self-controlled and have a good reputation, be above reproach, both inside the church and outside the church. He should be faithful to his wife and have kids that are not only in control, but actually respect his leadership. He shouldn't be greedy or true divin, dri, too, too driven by financial gain. It's not a very spectacular list at all. Almost everything on here applies to basic Christian character, with the exception being the ability to teach, which not everybody has, and not a new convert, because some people are new converts. Although, actually, that one not being a new convert isn't actually on the list in, in, the, in the book of Titus, because Titus is kind of doing in Crete what Timothy is supposed to be doing in Ephesus, but that one's not on the list. Do you know why? Because everyone was a new convert in Crete. And so by and large, they shouldn't be a brand new believer. Just give them some time. Let them walk out faithfulness first. So why do all of these things have to do with basic Christian character? Three things. One, because elders are to serve as a model for all Christians, not only on what to believe, but also on how to behave. How to reflect the kingdom of God, to display it in your life. Second is because you multiply who you are. Jesus understood this, and Luke 6, 39 said, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be just like his teacher. Here's the truth about us. We are mimickers by nature. Did you know that? We look to people that we admire, and we begin to pattern our lives after them. It's why kids copy their parents in some of the silliest things, right? It's why we start to sound like and talk like people that we admire. We intuitively simply begin patterning our life after them. It's also important, if we understand this, to understand why the church is to be led by a plurality of elders and deacons, not just one, because not all of us are strong in the same areas. Not all of us are weak in the same areas. Not, additionally, not all of us have the same type of gifting. And so you might look at me and how maturity works itself out in my life and say, I could never do that, Pastor Kyle. And, and for some of you, you'd be right. You, you haven't been gifted like I have. And others, you, you probably could do it even better than I do it at some point. How much, how cool then is it that there's to be a plurality of different people so that you see another elder or another deacon and say, well, that, that looks like what I could be. That looks like what I could do. Both elders and deacons are to be models of maturity because you multiply who you are. That's, that's what leaders do, for better or worse, which is why I think there's such a big emphasis placed on a leader's family. Verse 4 tells us he must manage his own household or family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? And all you guys are like, I'm going to ask your kids that. No. <laughs> Here's the thing. The way that you lead in your home will be how you intuitively lead the church. See, at home, you can't fake who you are. Your wife and your kids see your best, and they see your worst moments, don't they? See, when we get home, we have a way of letting our guard down, don't we? And who we are in the core of who we are has a way of coming out, and in some ways that's good, and in some ways that can be Ugly. That's why you often disagree and get in fights with your siblings the most or your parents the most because no one's trying to impress each other and put up a false self when they're at home. Tells you something, doesn't it? 
who you are is who you are, and it will come out. So that, like, when my kids come and listen to me preach, like, they should see, oh, that's dad. He's maybe a little more excited than he is at home, but that's what he sounds like. That's who he is. They should never come in and say, who's that guy? Why is he quoting all those dead guys? Additionally, I think leading people is a lot more art than it is science. It's a lot more principles and wisdom than it is laws and mandates. You might have great conviction and insights, but if the closest people to you don't respond to your leadership and your convictions, then that's telling you something about how you handle things. I'm not saying that you need to have perfect angels for kids or that your marriage could be a Hallmark film, but it does mean that your little flock responds positively to your leadership. Now, does that mean that a single person can't serve as an elder or overseer? Um, No. Jesus was single. The guy who's actually writing down these qualifications, to the best of our knowledge, is single. And so it doesn't mean that at all, but if he does have a family, that shows you a little bit about what he's like. That's the logic. So let's just walk through the list together, not just to see the kind of character that we should demand of our leaders, but the kind of character that we should be forming and shaping in all of us. First, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You have to want to do this. Otherwise, it isn't worth it. There should be a sense of internal call or desire to to fill this role, this calling as a pastor or a church leader. You want to know why? Because if not, it's not worth it. The late nights, the responsibility, the slander, the shots, the the weight that you feel of caring for other people. And so the first requirement is that you should actually want to do this. You should actually feel a sense of calling for this. And here's the thing. Not everybody wants to lead. And that's okay. Not everybody has to be a leader. I know some would say everybody has to be a leader. Not everybody has to be a leader. Everybody has to be a follower, even the leaders. Of Jesus. Second, an overseer must be above reproach. This is kind of a junk drawer term that means being well thought of generally, having no obvious disqualifications. This is the kind of word that you need at the beginning of the list so that you don't get the guy who's like, well, it's not on the list. Well, if it's the first thing that comes to our mind, that probably means you're not above reproach. Third, the husband of one wife, if he is married, that he's faithful to his spouse. Literally, a, a one-woman man. Now, there are lots of men that have one wife but are not what you would call faithful men or devoted to their wife. They would not be one-woman men. Does this mean, then, that a, a divorced man can't serve as an elder? Not necessarily. It depends quite a bit on the circumstances surrounding the divorce, and there's more nuance to it than that. He's to be sober-minded, the ability to keep your head and think clearly, even in challenging spots and circumstances, self-controlled, that... The character to not be controlled by your emotions and your impulses, but to be in control of your emotions and impulses. To not respond right away to every criticism or threat. You know, sometimes the best way to practice self-control is to just pause and put a little bit of distance between the input and the output. Whether you're a leader or not, when you get that email, sit on it for a while. If someone says something to you that you're ready to just punch back, Give it a little minute. Practice self-control. You might look at it differently tomorrow. Respectable. 
He is one who both demands respect, he's not a pushover, but also gives respect. It is not disrespectful toward people. Hospitable, meaning that you open up your home, not just to church people, but to strangers. The context here is that they didn't have hotels, but you often would welcome the stranger into your home as a safe place for them to stay as they were traveling. This means that you welcome those in need of a safe place. It doesn't mean that you have the same level of friendship with everybody, but it does mean that the, the sign over your life is not closed for business, but rather welcome. I'd love to get to know you. Able to teach, an effective Bible communicator, one who knows what he's talking about when it comes to understanding the Bible, has a high view of God's Word and is able to articulate in a way that doesn't put everybody to sleep. Now, some people, that's fine. Otherwise, I'd be disqualified. But most people don't go to sleep. James 3.1 warns us about the weightiness of teaching God's Word and speaking on behalf of God. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We're told that he's not a drunkard, not given to addictions of any kind, meaning drugs or alcohol or pornography, really any addiction. Not violent, but gentle. Not given to brawling or bouts of violence and anger. Not quarrelsome. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Many Bible teachers who are gifted and know the scriptures well, I would describe as quarrelsome people. They like to pick a fight, especially if it's theological in nature. They like to take maybe a small point of doctrine and make it the central focus so that they can say, if you don't believe this, anathema. You're not even a Christian. See, an elder is not to be quarrelsome by nature, not always looking for a fight, even if it's a theological one. One who stands for the truth but does so graciously. Not a lover of money. An overseer should not be driven by money or or gain. It's not his primary motivation. He should never pursue church leadership with that as a motivating factor. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's something about experience and leadership that humbles you if you do it right. Sometimes as a young leader, especially with God's power at work, you tend to walk with a little swagger, with a sense of everything I touch turns to gold. If you lead for a while, you realize that you don't get it right all the time. And sometimes when you don't give it right, it hurts people. And sometimes you find a situation and you give it your best shot. You throw your best fastball and someone hits it 500 feet. And people get hurt. Godly leadership has a way of humbling you, not puffing you up. There's not a lot of swagger left. You know what? It's kind of like Jesus. Even though he had reason to be proud, he wasn't. He was humble. Took the posture of a servant. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is a fascinating qualification, isn't it? It means that not just church people have to like you. It means that your Christian faith doesn't make you obnoxious doesn't mean that the world's always going to agree with you. They certainly will not. But it does mean that the way that you conduct yourself in those disagreements is respectable. And you're well thought of generally by outsiders. Now, on the one hand, this list is unspectacular. On the other hand, it's overwhelming. And we wonder, who of us actually lives up to that? Keep in mind that the person writing this list called himself the chief of sinners. When it comes to leadership. It's an overall sense of maturity and godliness, not perfection. 
It's blameless, not sinless, because only Jesus was sinless. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What about deacons? If elders and overseers are responsible for the whole of the church, deacons, ministers, servants, they are responsible for areas in the church. An example of this from the scriptures is if you open to Acts chapter 6, we see that there's a potential church split brewing in the very young church. The Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews are not getting along very well. In fact, the Greek-speaking Jews look at how the Hebrew-speaking Jews are being taken care of in the daily distribution of food, and they say, hey, they're getting more than us. We're being neglected. This is a big issue. And in fact, it almost split the church between the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews. You would say, that's a big deal, isn't it? And the leaders of the church, at that time the apostles, you, you might call them the elders later on, but it's the apostles, the disciples, they're, they're faced with this dilemma. We need to actually distribute this equitably or we're going to end up with two churches and that'll be a mess. But rather than taking their time and doing all of that, they say, you know, we, we can't stop preaching and teaching the word and focusing on prayer in order to wait tables and distribute food. It's important. And so what did they do? They appointed seven men of high character in order to do that work first. I think these are the first deacons. And their job description was what they needed to do. And if you see, the, the result of that is that the church continues on in unity, that, that there's an equitable distribution of food that takes place, and that some of the priests and some of the religious leaders begin to come to Christ because the focus, I think, that the disciples were able to place on prayer and the study of the word. So deacon leads, deacons lead in specific areas of ministry in order to free up the elders to teach and lead the church as a whole. Beyond that, I don't think it's necessary to give greater clarity or job descriptions because it's whatever the church in that context needs. So what are their qualifications? In many ways, the same way. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Another way of saying respectable. Not double-tongued, meaning what you say is what you'll do. You're not playing both sides of the fence. You're sincere in your faith and your speech. You don't play word games. Not addicted to much wine. Again, drunkenness must have been a significant problem in Ephesus for it to be listed a couple times. Uh, not greedy for dishonest gain. Not overly motivated by money. They're, they're, they're the same qualifications in general, aren't they? Except... What's missing is that they don't have the ability necessarily to teach. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, strong in their faith and their convictions. They must be tested first, then let them serve if they prove themselves blameless. This is not a recent convert, but actually before putting them in spiritual authority, show how they can handle a little bit of responsibility. This is basic wisdom, isn't it? You don't put someone in a position of leadership to, show, to, to see if they lead. That's how people get hurt. You see those who are leading, and you give them authority. Their wives or women deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, these lists are almost the same, with the exception of the ability to teach why is Christian character so prominent? Family relationships so prominent? Because you will multiply who you are. Character matters. And let me just give you a little secret about leadership. The currency of leadership is trust. It's trust. In church, people may follow you initially because of your title, but over the long haul, they will follow you because they trust you, 
They admire you, and often they want to be like you as you follow Jesus. Now, all of us sinners out there, this is terrifying because we're not perfect. But again, we're called to be models of growth and repentance rather than perfection. Paul writes in the next two verses this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how, I, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, I want to be there to encourage you, but if I can't and I'm delayed, Timothy, appoint leaders so that the church will know how they ought to act and behave as family members of the household of God. After leading the church for 20 years or so, now as an adult, here are some things that I've come to realize. As the leaders go, so go the church. As the leaders go, so go the church. If the leaders of the church are healthy and godly and unified, then the experience of the church, for the most part, is going to be good. But if the leadership of the church is immature and fractured and warring with each other and by and large unhealthy, eventually it's going to spill over and people are going to get hurt. I see a lot of gray hair saying, uh-huh. So what exactly then does it look like? Here, let me just give you my best snapshot of when this works, this is what it looks like. The elders or pastors of the church create a culture in the church through preaching gospel doctrine and embodying gospel culture. Well, what is gospel culture? I would say your culture as an organization is this. What you teach, what you celebrate, what you clarify, what you pray for, what you do without thinking, and what you tolerate. See, that works for the church, but that works for almost any organization, doesn't it? The culture that you have is what you teach, what you celebrate, what you clarify, what you pray for, what you do without thinking, and what you tolerate. So the elders of the church create a gospel culture that embodies the truth that they proclaim and teach about. The deacons or directors of the church, and I would add city group leaders to that, are to embody this culture as examples to follow and lead in areas of ministry that reflect and embody this culture. The members of the church are to thrive within this gospel culture, realizing that life within the household of God is the good life. Not the perfect life, but the good life. And seekers or guests or visitors are to be attracted and drawn to this culture as they consider the claims of Christ and how he can produce a people like this. See, one of the things that we send you to do every single week is to display the impact of the gospel. That will help you more than you can imagine in declaring the truth of the gospel because they see it. They see its power lived out in your lives. This is the calling that the, the, the people of Israel were called to do in the Old Testament but utterly failed at. They were to embody, they were to reflect that the rule and the reign of God was good. And it was countercultural to the way that people lived, but they were to show people a different way of life. So too now we in the church, as the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, given new hearts, are to reveal to a watching world what God is like and that it's a good life. Because the church is called to embody the presence of Christ in this world. Let me read the last couple of verses out of the New Living, and don't worry, I'm wrapping up. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in through the world and taken to heaven in glory. Church, it matters how we live. We are giving the watching world a picture of what Jesus is like. Not perfectly, but faithfully. This means that our leaders are to be Christ-like, leading in a servant-hearted way, just like Jesus did. See, Jesus didn't just talk about this stuff. He actually did it. He lived it. And unlike any church leader that you've ever met, including me, his character and record was spotless. Perfect. Here's the hard truth. Church leaders, even if they're healthy, they can't save you with their leadership. It's beyond them. But Jesus can. The best of church leaders are mere reflections of his kindness and grace, but they are never him. If you put your trust in church leaders, they may be exemplary, but they will eventually at some point let you down. But if you put your trust in Jesus and follow your leaders' examples as they follow Christ, Jesus will never let you down. I've heard a lot of talk over the last few months and years about church hurt. And so many of the stories that I've heard are real and raw and legit. See, every human leader leaves us just a little bit disappointed, don't they? Because what we long for and sometimes see in the best of them is a longing for the perfect leader, a perfect father, a perfect savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. Let me share with you what he's done. He came and he took responsibility for our sin, not because he had to, but because he chose to. And he lived the perfect life, the life that you failed to live and I failed to live. And then he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, bearing in his body the punishment that we deserved, taking responsibility like a good leader for that which isn't his responsibility. And then he rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death, that if we put put our faith in him, if we believe in his name, we might be saved. All of our sin dealt with by his sacrifice and his perfect righteousness, his resume credited to us by faith that we are judged on the basis of his account, not our own. Guys, that's good news. And while earthly leaders might give you echoes and shades of that, only Jesus is the perfect embodiment of that. He's the Savior. And on our best days, we simply point to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it shapes us and challenges us, how it provokes us and convicts us. God, I pray for myself as a church leader that you would help me to live up to this calling. I pray that you would surround our church with many godly leaders that take seriously the qualifications and the godliness of the office. God, we know that we are not saved by perfect leadership. We're saved by Jesus. And so help us to embody him and the life that he invites us to live. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.